most of us are physicalists. Most of us just deeply believe that space exists, whether or not any creatures exist, that the universe would be pretty much the way it is, even if there were no life, no living creatures to perceive it. And mm -hmm. so we think that space and time are a pre-existing reality. Physical objects, rocks and planets would exist with their real properties, even if we weren't here. I now think on you know, evolutionary grounds that that's false. And so now the question is, if space, time, and physical objects aren't the nature of objective reality, if that's just our desktop, that's just our interface, what is our interface hiding? I mean, what is the reality that has been hidden from us because we don't need to know it to stay alive? What is and what is not true? Those who know themselves being better every single day. Hey everyone, welcome to the Think Grow podcast, where personal development meets real life. I'm your host, Ruben Chavez, and I explore a variety of topics with thought leaders, creators, scientists, and other interesting people with the goal to enrich your mind and improve your life. This episode is for you science nerds, and I include myself in that category for sure. This episode combines two subjects I find endlessly fascinating and think about quite often actually, those subjects being perception and evolution. Now you might be asking, what does one have to do with the other? They seem to be two separate and unrelated subjects. Well, in this episode, Donna Hoffman explains their relationship. Don is a cognitive scientist at the University of California, and he's been studying visual perception for over 40 years. His research has led him to some intriguing and really compelling conclusions about our ability to see reality and even about the nature of reality itself. In this interview, we talk about the nature of reality through a scientific lens, and Don explains what he calls his interface theory of perception. And we also touch on some of the arguments against his theory, which I found super interesting. Fair warning, Don is a super intelligent guy, and this interview does get a little dense in some parts, like when we talk about string theory and the future of space-time. But if you're a curious soul like I am, I assure you it is absolutely worth the cognitive investment. Personally, I had to listen to this interview like several times to really absorb some of the concepts that had gone over my head the first time around. But we also talk about more intuitive topics like meditation, um, the connection between science and spirituality, and the evolutionary roots of anxiety, which I think a lot of you will find extremely helpful. Anyway, I think overall you're going to find this conversation fascinating and thought-provoking just as I did. I will say that by the end of the conversation, you may end up with more questions than answers, but, you know, such is the nature of these deep topics. Anyway, prepare your cognitive faculties and get ready for some head-spinning theories. I give you Don Hoffman. Don, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Yes. Well, I want to get into all your interesting theories and hypotheses, but I want to first give some background for the people listening as to kind of what you do and kind of how you came to study what it is that you study. You're a professor of cognitive science at the University of California. 
how long have you been doing this, and what was it that attracted you to this area of research? I've been at the University of California since 1983 in the Cognitive Sciences Department, and first became interested in visual perception when I was an undergraduate at UCLA around 1977, taking an interesting course with a professor there on artificial intelligence, and ran into the work of a David Marr, who was doing some very interesting work on visual perception at the time, combining artificial intelligence and mathematical models of vision to build theories of vision that could actually be you know, rigorous enough we could build robots that could see. So he was at MIT, and I went to MIT in 1979 to study with him and spent some time in the artificial intelligence lab in what was now called the Brain and Cognitive Sciences Department at MIT. So I've had a long interest in perception and mathematical models of perception and relationship of perception and reality. And then in the last 10 years or so, have been studying more carefully the role of evolution by natural selection and how that influences how we think about perceptual systems. Your study of visual perception, did that kind of dovetail very nicely into, you know, the evolution by natural selection? How did that come about? How did your visual perception research kind of lead to what you do now? It led to the evolution in the following sense. So many of my colleagues who study visual perception make an argument that evolution favors perceptions that are accurate to objective reality. They call these veridical perceptions. That's a term that is used in the field. Veridical perceptions are perceptions that accurately depict the true state of the objective world. And the argument that's made by many of my colleagues is that natural selection favors veridical perceptions. The argument goes that those of our ancestors who saw the world more accurately had a competitive advantage over those who saw less accurately and, you know, important activities like feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating. So as a result, they were more likely, the ones who saw more accurately, were more likely to pass on their genes that coded for the more accurate perceptions. And so after thousands of generations of this, we can be quite confident that we're the offspring of those who saw more accurately. And so our perceptions, we can be confident, are quite accurate. And that seems like a very plausible argument. It has firsthand plausibility, but it turns out that the theory of evolution by natural selection is now a mathematically precise theory. We have the tools of evolutionary game theory um, that was invented by John Maynard Smith and evolutionary graph theory and genetic algorithms. So we no longer have to go with intuitive arguments. We can actually write down equations, differential equations and other equations that actually model the effects of natural selection. And so I decided to take the intuitions of my colleagues and test them and ask the specific question, does natural selection favor accurate perceptions? I mean, evolution is a very complicated subject. There are lots of things that influence our evolution. There's genetic drift, technical things like linkage and pleiotropy and so forth. But no one makes arguments about those factors and you know, accurate perceptions. The argument is always that accurate perceptions are fitter. And so it's a natural selection argument that we get a selective advantage by having accurate perceptions. And so the right tool, the mathematical tool to study that is called evolutionary game theory. It really focuses on the effects of natural selection, and it sort of puts a lot of the other influences on evolution to the side. So we can actually ask, what does natural selection favor? And so that's what I started doing about 10 years ago, was looking at evolutionary game theory and asking under what conditions, if any, would natural selection favor true perceptions. And what I found 
contradicts completely the intuitions of my colleagues. What in simulations that my graduate students and I did, Justin Mark and Brian Marion, we found that we could create hundreds of thousands of you know random worlds with resources and fitness functions in them. And we could place artificial organisms in these worlds and have them compete for resources. And we could allow some of the organisms to see all of reality, you know, so they had true accurate perceptions, completely true. And we had other organisms that we didn't allow to see any of the objective reality. Their perceptions were tuned not to the objective reality. They were just tuned to the, the fitness functions that governed the payoffs that they would get. And what we found was that when organisms of equal complexity competed, the ones that saw the truth always went extinct when they competed with ones that saw none of the truth and were just tuned to fitness functions. So natural selection never favored, literally never favored organisms that saw objective reality when they were competing with organisms of equal complexity that saw none of reality. And even when the the organisms that saw none of reality and were just tuned to fitness, in many cases when they were much simpler, they had even less resources, you know, in terms of perception and computational power than the ones that saw the truth, they could still beat the truth players. So that was what we found in in the simulations, and that we did hundreds of thousands of simulations. But then of course you can say simulations are simulations. That's not the same thing as a theorem. So a couple of years ago, I conjectured a theorem. My colleague, Chaitan Prakash, proved it. And we have a paper under review right now with the theorem. The theorem says that we call it the fitness beats truth theorem. And the theorem says that natural selection never favors an organism that sees reality as it is when that organism competes with an organism that sees none of reality and is just tuned to fitness. So in other words... I'll put it in, a, in a, a straightforward way. If an organism happened to arise by mutation that happened to see reality as it is, natural selection would set about to stamp it out and drive it to extinction. Because that has basically has no utility for survival. Is that correct? That's right. Our intuition that seeing the truth is helpful to survival is in fact wrong. Just make sure I understand this correctly and I'll just put it in the most simplest terms that I possibly can, because I don't have the, the scientific language necessarily that, that you have, but I want to make sure that people listening mm-hmm. understand. So you're saying essentially is that we evolved not to see a true picture of reality. Literally, our perceptual systems evolved to help us survive, rather. And in doing so, we see more of a caricature of reality than the actual reality. Is that Fairly accurate? Right. Yeah, I would say it this way, that perception is not about seeing truth. It's about having kids. (laughs) And that's what evolution shaped our perceptions to do. If your perceptual system allowed you a better chance at raising kids, then that was favored. Seeing the truth is irrelevant to that. An analogy I like to give is to the desktop interface on your computer or your mobile device. That's very helpful. If you're on your laptop and you're writing an email to a friend and the icon for your email on your desktop is, you know, blue and rectangular in the middle of your screen, does that mean that the email itself, the file in your computer is blue and rectangular and in the middle of your computer? Well, yeah, of course not. Anybody who thought that is missing the point of the interface. The interface is there not to show you the truth 
of the computer, the voltages and magnetic fields, the transistors and all that, that nastiness. It's there to hide the truth. You don't need to know the truth. And in fact, the truth will get in your way. If you had mm. to toggle voltages to send an email, your friends would never hear from you. So the idea is that the interface is there to give you control of the reality, to control mm. the, the resistors and the voltages while keeping you utterly ignorant of that reality. And so that's what evolution has done for us. It shaped us with perceptual systems that are really dumbed down, right? Your, your interface, in some sense, on your laptop is, you know, really dumbs things down. It doesn't show you all the complexity of inside the computer. It gives you little eye candy, really, really simplified stuff on the desktop. And that's what our perceptual systems have done. Evolution works on the cheap. We have a very cheap interface. It hides reality. It's too complicated. We don't need to know it. And it gives us simple interface. So space and time, three-dimensional space, as you now perceive it around you, is just your desktop of your interface. And Physical objects like a table and a chair, a fork and a spoon, these are just icons, three-dimensional icons in your three-dimensional desktop. And they're there, shaped by natural selection, not to reveal the truth, but explicitly really to hide the truth and just allow you to control reality while being utterly ignorant about the nature of reality. That's fascinating. How far along is this theory? Is this a theory? Do we call it a hypothesis? What is this? How far along is this? The interface theory of perception is what I call this, mm -hmm. or ITP for short. It's now a genuine theory. It's got a mathematical theorem behind it. It makes all sorts of interesting predictions. And in my field, there's a standard handbook. It's called the Stevens Handbook of Experimental Psychology and Cognitive Neuroscience. And I have a chapter on the interface theory of perception coming out in, in the new handbook. So it's now, in some sense, being canonized as part of the field. So yeah, it's a genuine scientific theory. I wouldn't say that it's universally accepted. I think it's controversial. It's now in the Bible of the field. <laughs> well, yeah, I imagine there's no doubt resistance to this kind of an idea as with any revolutionary idea or paradigm shift in the scientific community. I'm sure this is <laughs> this would be categorized as one of those. What are some of the arguments against this theory? And I'm sure you've gotten some feedback from your colleagues who have tried to prove you wrong. What are some of the arguments against this? Well, there's been a number of them. One argument is that the argument from evolution that we don't see reality as it is, and that therefore space and time and physical objects, as we perceive them, are not telling us anything about objective reality, that that argument is actually shoots itself in the foot logically. And the argument goes like this, that if you look at the theory of evolution by natural selection, it assumes that there is a real physical three-dimensional world with real physical objects in it, such as DNA. And so if I've used the theory of evolution to show that space and time and physical objects like DNA are just useful fictions, they're not the nature of objective reality, then I've used the theory of evolution to refute the theory of evolution, so I've shot myself in the foot. I've got a logical problem here. I've been accused of that, and my response is that I haven't done that at all, the heart of evolution is an algorithm, and it's sometimes called universal Darwinism. Richard Dawkins and Dan Dennett talk about universal Darwinism. It's this key central algorithm of evolution by natural selection. The algorithm is you need variation, selection, and retention. So you need to have the ability to have variation in the population. You need to have some kind of selection pressures, and you need also to be able to pass on whatever is worthwhile. So that's the abstract algorithm. Dennett and Dawkins will talk about, for example, 
that we can use the theory of evolution very abstractly to talk about the evolution of ideas. They call them memes. How do certain ideas get passed through popular culture and others die out? Well, it's this abstract algorithm of evolution that explains that. So it turns out it's this abstract algorithm that's captured by the mathematics of evolutionary game theory. And that's what I used. So I used the algorithmic core of the theory of evolution. And what that algorithmic core shows is that some of the peripheral assumptions of biological evolutionary theory, namely peripheral assumptions like space-time is objective reality and DNA exists even when it's not perceived, these peripheral assumptions are not necessary and they're in fact almost surely false. So what it shows is the power of evolutionary theory to go back and re-examine some of the you know, extra assumptions that have been brought to bear and throw away some of the extra assumptions. So instead of shooting myself in the foot logically, I'm really showing the power of scientific theories to refine themselves. Wow, okay. That's interesting. And is that one of the main arguments that's kind of brought forth against your theory? Well, that's one. Another one is a technical argument. When I say that our perceptions are not telling us the truth about objective reality, there are arguments to the fact that I haven't actually defined what the meaning of perceptions are. So if I tell you some statement that I want you to believe, but I don't define what the terms are, then how can you ever know that it's true or false? If I say blah plus blah equals blah, then you have no idea what I'm saying, and you can't say whether it's true or false, because I haven't defined blah, right? right? And so what one objection to my work has been, unless Hoffman is willing to tell us exactly what our perceptions really are saying about objective reality, unless he actually tells us what our perceptions mean, then he can't possibly have any theorem that says they're not true, right? So you have to tell us what they're saying before you can actually tell us that they're not saying the truth. Again, seems a very plausible argument, right? But again, it's wrong, and it follows that it's wrong from just elementary facts about logic. We can show, for example, if I tell you that if P is true, then Q is true, and then I tell you that Q is not true, then you know that P is not true. This is one of the things of logic. The point mm -hmm. is, what we know from logic is that we know that certain logical statements are true or false, even if we don't know what P and Q are, right? There's right. lots of things I can tell you about P and Q. If I say P or Q is true, therefore P is true. Well, that's false. <laughs> that's just plain false, no matter what P and Q are actually asserting about the world. And right. that's what I've done with the theory of evolution by natural selection. What I've shown is that whatever meaning you want to assign to perceptions as to what they're actually saying about reality, it's a feature of evolutionary theory that they would not have evolved to show us objective reality. So it's a logical feature that I'm getting after here. And then what the theory actually shows is that most of the theories of the meaning of perceptions that most philosophers have are, in fact, false. So it actually comes back and bites the other way. These are some of the kinds of arguments. You can see that they're fairly technical. They're right. non-trivial arguments that have been brought to bear. And that's what science is about, right? I'm making a very strong claim here. And so it's right for my colleagues to come back with very strong and technical objections. But so far, every one of those objections has been met. And another reason why I think that there's such a strong blowback or some resistance to this is because your theory also calls into question, actually kind of refutes the idea of space-time. The fundamental 
reality that we've kind of assumed since Einstein, I guess. Is that correct? And, and if so, that's right. well, how, does it, how does it do that? You're absolutely right. That's one of the shocking implications of this framework is that most of us think of space as the pre-existing stage on which the drama of life plays out. Right? Space blew into existence right. 13.8 billion years ago at the Big Bang, and it's been there for all that time, and we're latecomers on the stage. And so mm -hmm. space has always been there. And what I'm saying is that space is not a pre-existing reality at all. Space is a data format that our species happens to use as its desktop for representing information about fitness payoffs to keep us alive. So it's we're living in the matrix of our data format. We have a three-dimensional data format, and we've mistaken that data format for a pre-existing stage that was there before us. It was not there before us. We create that stage on the fly as a data format that we use for our perceptual purposes. And the same thing is true then of everything inside space-time, right? If space-time is our creation, then everything inside space-time, all you know, rocks and planets and suns and moons and stars, those are all icons that we create on the fly within our space-time desktop. So I make a clear prediction. Space-time does not exist prior to perception. If I'm wrong about that, I'm wrong. Physical objects, I claim, have no definite values of any of their physical properties, like position, momentum, spin, that exist independent of how an observer makes an observation. So if I'm wrong, if physical objects have definite values of physical properties when they're not observed, I'm wrong. That's a clear empirical claim that I'm making. And if someone could prove that wrong empirically, then my theory would be completely destroyed. So very, very clean prediction. Space-time exists only as a format of our perceptions. It's not an objective reality. Physical objects exist only as part of our desktop interface. They're icons that we create, and they only have their properties in the moment as we create them and not otherwise. So those are very, very strong predictions. And if any of those predictions turned out to be false, then I would walk away from the theory. So in science, there's two main pillars, right, to explain how the world works. And there's the current model of general relativity, which explains how big things, the behavior of big objects. And then there is the, you know, quantum theory, which is very, very small objects. But these don't drive. These do not gel together. And so since we've discovered that, you know, scientists have been trying to come up with a kind of a theory of everything. And this is where string theory has evolved. My question to you is, is the reason we haven't been able to come up with a quote-unquote theory of everything and why maybe string theory isn't progressed as far as it should have, is it because we're still looking at the desktop? We don't have the right paradigm to come up with that? Yeah, I think that might be the case. String theory, general relativity is an incredibly beautiful theory, very, very powerful. It has made a lot of great predictions, including black holes. Quantum theory is a beautiful scientific theory, and much of our modern technology is based on it. So these are very, very powerful theories, but the physicists are quite concerned because the two theories contradict each other. And string theory is an attempt to bring the two theories together, and string theory itself has deep problems. The most successful string theories involve the prediction of supersymmetry. The Large Hadron Collider has tested predictions of the supersymmetry theory and has failed to confirm them. So there's a real quandary. Many physicists, including Nima, Arkani Hamed, David Gross, and Ed Witten, are saying that whatever 
theory we come up with next in physics, we're going to have to let go of space-time. The quote that they have is, and this is their quote, space-time is doomed. When they say that, what they're saying is space-time cannot be a fundamental concept in physical theories. We'll have to have something much more fundamental than space-time eventually show how what we call space-time is some kind of emergent property from this more fundamental nature of, of reality. And I agree with that completely. I think that space-time is just an emergent desktop. There's a more fundamental reality. What we're going to have to do, though, is let go of the notion, I think, of an unconscious objective reality to get where we need to go. Most physicists are assuming that we have to start with unconscious physical ingredients and build up a theory of reality from that, including a theory of how we happen to have conscious experiences, like smelling garlic or feeling the plush of velvet or something like that. They'll say that these kinds of conscious experiences are latecomers in the physical world, and they'll have to explain how physical systems can come to have conscious experiences. I think that framework is fundamentally wrong. I'm claiming, and many physicists are now claiming, that space-time is doomed. It's not fundamental. And there's lots of evidence that that's, in fact, the case. I've got evolutionary arguments now, you know, based on evolutionary game theory, but the physicists have their own physical-based arguments that space-time is doomed. When space-time is doomed, that means physical objects go with it. The sun, moon, stars your table, your chair, your, your spoon, all these things are not pre-existing realities. They're emergent from something deeper. That deeper thing is conscious experiences, and space and time is just your desktop. And so because things like string theory assume space-time, is that just a flawed kind of path that we're on altogether? Does it have to be something totally different? It assumes that there are many, many dimensions beyond just like three spatial and one temporal dimension. So it has many dimensions, but ultimately, the idea that space-time itself plays some fundamental role will have to be let go, even mm -hmm. if it's only a partial role. There's something deeper. So, for example, some of this comes from the work of Nima Arkani Hamed with something that he calls the amplitudehedron. It has to do with when you do experiments like the Large Hadron Collider and you slam particles into each other, you might take two particles called gluons and smash them into each other near the speed of light, and then you see all this shower of particles coming out. These are called scattering events. And you can talk about the probabilities of what they call amplitudes for various scattering events. And, and they have to be able to compute these because they're making billions of these collisions per second. Most of them, they know what's happening. And they need to be able to detect the ones and understand the ones that they've already seen that they know what's happening so they can find the new scattering events that might lead to new physics. And so they have to be able to compute these amplitudes. And, and it turns out if you do the computation according to so-called Feynman's rules in space and time, you get 80 pages of algebra that you've got to compute for each event. It's a mess. It's really, really computationally intensive, actually prohibitive. But they've discovered that there are some deeper symmetries in nature that are not captured in space and time. These symmetries are now, they've codified them in this thing they call the amplitudehedron. It doesn't exist in space and time. It's, it goes beyond space and time. And when you go to this deeper level of symmetries, the 80 pages of algebra turn into a single expression that you can compute on the back of an envelope. Nature is telling us something very deep here. It's saying, if you insist on keeping space time and doing all the computations in space time, you can do it, but it's a real mess and you're missing a deeper symmetry. So if you, if you let go of space-time, mm -hmm. 
there is this deeper realm with deeper symmetries, and moreover, the computations become essentially trivial. But we don't know what it is yet, and that's what Nemo will say: is you know, we don't know yet. <laughs> We're going to let go of space time, and space time is doomed. But we don't yet know what physics is about. What is it that's fundamental? And they don't know yet. That's interesting. What implications should this interface theory of perception prove to be, you know, absolutely true? What implications would this have on a practical level for, I don't know, let's say the individual and also for for society? It's pretty wild to think that something we all deeply believe from childhood is deeply false, right? That's that's pretty yeah. stunning to think that we've always believed that space is the pre-existing stage in which the drama of life plays out and objects were there, you know, the sun, wind, and stars existed long before we did. To recognize that that's false is stunning. I'm not saying that nothing existed before me. It's just that whatever that something is, it's nothing like what I experience, right? So it's just like you know, on your desktop, the, the blue icon for your email, it's not literally true. The email is not blue and it's not rectangular. But there is some objective reality that's utterly unlike that blue rectangular icon. And so I'm not denying that there is an objective reality. I'm just saying that the objective reality is utterly unlike space and time. It's utterly unlike physical objects. In fact, the very language of space and time and objects and shapes and colors and motions and textures, that language is the wrong language to describe objective reality. So I'm teaching a class in computer science. And I say to the class, I want you to give me a theory of how computers work, but the only language you can use is language of pixels on the desktop. Mm. They can't do it. I mean, I've set up an impossible task because I've given them the wrong language to describe, in this example, the reality of the computer. And that's what's happened here with us. The language of space-time and physical objects, position, momentum, shapes, and so forth, is just the wrong language to describe objective reality. So the practical implication is this. There's the personal thing that, you know, first, it's just amazing to discover something we deeply believe is deeply wrong. Right. But as a scientist, this is very, very important. It's very important to find out that a theory that we've held for a long time <laughs> is deeply wrong. That then forces us to step back and start to search around for a new theory that doesn't even use the language of space and time and physical objects. So hmm. who knows where that's going to lead us, but we do know that every time we get a new advance in our theories, we also get a new advance in technology. So by letting go of a false theory and pursuing something deeper that's counterintuitive, we will eventually get some technological payoffs that will probably stun us. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It seems like the logical progression there. This model intersects, I think, with a variety of academic disciplines like biology, I think philosophy a little bit, psychology. So it's kind of interesting. I'm just wondering, is the fractionation of the things that we call different disciplines or different fields of study, is that an illusion? And is, is there only one kind of, I guess, I don't know, field of study? I think this is maybe referred to as the unity of knowledge. I'm just wondering what your take on that is. Are we going to eventually find that there's not biology and psychology and, you know, whatever? It's all actually one thing that we're looking at? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. The unity of science, the unity of knowledge. There are some who argue for it and some who argue against it. So, for example, one argument against the unity of science goes as follows. Consider the notion of money in economic theory. What counts as money? Well. It could be feathers, 
It could be shells. It could be bits in a computer. It could be green pieces of paper with the images of dead white men's faces on it. It's all sorts of things could count as money. So money plays a fundamental role in economic theory. The question then becomes, this term, money, which plays a role in economic theory, does it have a natural kind description, say, in physics? Is there some natural collection of entities in the physical world that correspond to money? And the answer appears to be no, since all sorts of different physically disjoint things could be counted as money. And so this is sometimes used as an argument for the disunity of science, saying a key natural kind term in economic theory, namely money, does not get cashed out into a natural kind term in, say, physics or chemistry. Once you see that kind of argument, you can make many similar kinds of arguments for many disciplines. I myself think that there's something to that argument, but I'm looking at myself a theory that I call theory of conscious realism, in which consciousness is fundamental, and I have a mathematical model of what I call conscious agents that I'm working on with several colleagues, including Chaitan Prakash and Chris Fields and Manish Singh and others. We're developing this theory of of conscious realism, and this theory says that there is a unity to all of science, that the ultimate nature of reality is consciousness in, in the form of what we call conscious agents and their dynamics, and that in some sense, all these intellectual fields like biology, psychology, economics, and so forth, will come out of this deeper theory of consciousness and the interaction of conscious agents. So there is this deeper sense of a unity to science that will underlie even these apparent and I think real disunities in the natural kind terms of the various special sciences. So my ultimate answer is, I am going myself for a unified theory of science based on a mathematical model of consciousness, and hoping that that model will show where the apparent disunity comes from and get to a deeper unity. Maybe you can clarify something for me. In there, you kind of mentioned the argument against the unity of of science. One of them is, let's say, money as a currency and, and how that does not translate to the realm of physics. But isn't money just a cultural phenomenon that we have? And the physics of money is the material that it's printed on. But the idea of money is just a cultural phenomenon. How does that reconcile? And that is part of the argument for the disunity is to say that money is, in some sense, whatever we agree to take as money. So it is a, a mm-hmm. kind of cultural phenomenon. And because of that, When you look at all the different things that we've agreed to take as money, they don't translate into some fundamental kind of notion in physics itself, right? Philosophers use the term natural kind. Each theory has what it calls as natural kind terms. These are the terms that figure in the laws of that science. So in economic science, money is one of the terms that will figure in the laws of economics. And the point is that if we now say, okay, Money figures in the laws of economic science. Can we translate money down into physics and get something that will also figure in laws of physics? And therefore, it will also be part of the natural kind terms in physics. And the answer is no. And part for the reason you just raised, it seems like money really is heavily influenced by culture, by what we agree to have as money. Right now, with cryptocurrencies, we're now agreeing bits and computers (laughs) described in blockchains and so forth are money. That is the problem for the disunity of science. So those arguments are, mm. you know, I can't say that they can be trivially dismissed. That's a deep philosophical argument. So my hope for a unity is not a trivial hope. It's, I mean, I'm hoping that I can get a theory of consciousness, although it might be 
true, when we look at these fields as separate scientific fields, we might get a deeper point of view in which we see them all as theories created by conscious agents. The big question that you're attempting to answer, would you say it's, do we see reality as it is? Is that, is that accurate? That's, that's one of the big questions. Is What are others? The other is, what is the nature of reality? Most of us are physicalists. Most of us just deeply believe that space exists, whether or not any creatures exist, that uh, mm-hmm. you know, we could imagine that the universe would be pretty much the way it is, even if there were no life, no living creatures to perceive it. And mm-hmm. so we think that space and time are a pre-existing reality. Physical objects, rocks and planets would exist with their real properties, even if we weren't here. No creature were there to observe it. So most of mm-hmm. us are physicalists. I now think on you know, evolutionary grounds that that's false. And so now the question is, if space, time, and physical objects aren't the nature of objective reality, if that's just our desktop, that's just our interface, what is our interface hiding? I mean, what is the reality that has been hidden from us because we don't need to know it to stay alive? The right answer is, I don't know, <laughs> right? That's, that's the, the, the right answer. But again... The honest answer. <laughs> that's the honest answer, right? But as a scientist, my goal is to propose theories that are absolutely precise so that my colleagues can show me precisely where I'm wrong. And you have to be bold. You have to know that you're probably wrong, but that's the way science goes. So my hypothesis is that consciousness is fundamental, but not just a hand wave notion of consciousness. I've got a mathematical theory that's been published, and several follow-up articles have been published. So the theory is out there, it's mathematically precise, and it makes precise predictions. And so the idea is that these things that I call conscious agents are the ultimate nature of reality, and that studying their dynamics can lead us to show how what we call space and time, evolution by natural selection, modern physics and so forth, general relativity, quantum theory, come out as derivatives from this more fundamental dynamics of conscious agents. So I'm very interested, you know, in a notion of objective reality and making bold hypotheses that are precise and knowing full well that I'm probably wrong, but to be precise so that I can't hide and so that others can say exactly where my theory is wrong. And that's how we make progress. So that's really interesting because, as I understand it, everything used to be considered philosophy. And until a particular idea gained enough evidence to kind of be able to spawn off its own independent discipline, then it became science, right? So it seems like the question, what is the nature of reality? Historically, that's been a a metaphysical question, right? That's been a question of philosophy. But it seems that now it's gaining enough momentum, it's gaining enough evidence and traction, this might be able to be included in the domain of science rather than philosophy. Does that sound right? Well, that sounds right, and it's in fact true. We now have very specific theorems from physics about the nature of reality. They're very, very interesting. So Einstein was very concerned about quantum mechanics because, as he put it to Abraham Pace, he said, do you really believe the moon isn't there unless you look? That was his concern about quantum mechanics. He, he felt that quantum mechanics was saying, and Niels Bohr and others said it was saying, that the moon in some sense isn't there when no one looks. Some other physicists, like Wolfgang Pauli, said, well, you know, Einstein shouldn't worry about this because this is a philosophical question that you can't answer. How can you possibly have an experiment that tests what's there when you're not doing an experiment? <laughs> how can you possibly do this? So, so he says, yeah. that's like, you might as well ask the question, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? 
that's got as much content as Einstein's worry about the nature of reality when you're not looking, when you're not doing an experiment. It turns out Pauli was wrong. It turns hmm. out, and a physicist named John Bell in 1963, 1964, published a paper with a mathematical result called Bell's inequality, sometimes called Bell's theorem. It turns out there are experiments you can do, and Bell outlines these experiments, that can conclusively either support or disprove what's called local realism, the claim that objective reality consists of physical objects with definite values of their properties, like position, momentum, and spin, that have definite values even when they're not observed, and whose influences against each other propagate only less than the speed of light or at the speed of light. So that's called local realism. Realism is the claim that the particles, the properties exist even when they're not observed. Locality is the claim that their influence propagates no faster than the speed of light. So that's a claim about objective reality. It's called local realism. We can do experimental tests to try to confirm or disprove local realism. We've done the experiments multiple times, and the result is clear. Local realism is false. That's not a hypothesis anymore. That's one of the big new results since 1982. Alan Aspect was the first to really get a good experiment on this, but has continued ever since with you know subsequent experiments tightening up loopholes that might have existed in previous experiments. Local realism is false. So that is where science has moved into the domain of philosophy, and we now have a clean result. Local realism is false. We have another result, a different set of theorems that were proven by two guys named Koken and Specker, and also by Bell in 1964. And this is about a different claim about reality, that objects have definite values of their properties, that's realism, even when they're not observed, and that those properties exist independent of the way you observe, the kind of measurement you make. So this is called non-contextual realism. So realism is the properties exist, and non-contextuality means that they have their definite values independent of the way you measure. That theorem, the Koch and Specker theorem, provides, again, the foundation for experiments. The experiments have been done, and non-contextual realism is false. Now, this is exactly what I predict from my interface theory. I'm predicting that space-time is doomed, that physical objects are just symbols that we create. So realism has to be false because you know physical objects with position, momentum, and spin don't exist independent of us. They are just a data format that we employ. So we're creating them on the fly as we need for our computational purposes, and we destroy them when we don't need them anymore and move on to make other objects. If local realism were true, I would be wrong. If non-contextual realism was true, I would be wrong. But one reason I'm very confident in my theory is that I know that local realism is false and non-contextual realism is false. This is where modern science is. So yes, science has moved into the area that was first occupied by philosophy. The nice thing about science is you get away from ad hominem arguments and you know hand waves, and you get down to theorems and experiments and definite results. The definite result is it is false that objects exist with definite properties that have influences less than the speed of light. That is false. And it's false that objects exist with definite properties that are independent of the way we measure them. That is false. So we do know two false claims about objective reality that we all used to deeply believe. These results are completely compatible with the interface theory of perception.
I have so much more I want to ask you about that particular subject. I do want to switch gears here a little mm-hmm. bit because I want to be respectful of your time. Ever since the Enlightenment, there's been this disconnect between science and religion. I know that you're kind of unique in it as a scientist and that you had some really in-depth conversations with some spiritual leaders. Uh, I know you've sat down with Deepak Chopra and you've even spoken at the, the Mind Science Reality Symposium alongside the Dalai Lama, which is really awesome to me. And I'm just wondering, why do you think this is important? Um, what motivates you to do this? And do you see science and let's say, spirituality being reconciled ever? Yeah, this is an important topic, the relationship between science and religion. There are some deep thinkers like Stephen Jay Gould who argued that they have separate domains. Science has its turf, religion has its turf, and we should just let the two coexist happily and not worry about so much about their interaction. And then mm-hmm. there are others like Richard Dawkins who say, no, when religions make empirical claims about, for example, the existence of God and realms beyond the physical, those are claims that, uh, you know, go into the turf of science. And so these are not separate enterprises. And wherever there are truth-valued claims being made about things where science plays a role, then science and religion need to come to terms. And on this, I agree with Tawkins, that I think it's wrong to think that these are separate domains. We, as human beings, want to come to understand who we are, what is the nature of the universe that we live in, and what is our role in that universe. These are deeply personal questions, and science and religion are going to both be talking about the same kinds of topics. From my point of view, science and religion both have some strengths and some weaknesses. And I'm looking forward to an interaction between the two that brings out the strengths and let goes of the weaknesses. So on the side of science, One of the strengths, in fact, the great strength of science is the scientific method. The scientific method is a really powerful way to get people to interact in a positive way towards understanding our reality. From an evolutionary point of view, why do we have the ability to have reason and logic? You might think, well, it was, you know, we evolved that so that we could see the truth. Well, that seems unlikely. There's some work by Dan Sperber and Hugo Mercier. And they have a book called The Enigma of Reason, which I'd highly recommend. And they argue that we evolved the ability to have logic and reason, not in pursuit of the truth, but as a tool of social persuasion. We evolved that so that in social context, I can try to persuade you about something I already believe. So I'm not in pursuit of the truth. I'm in pursuit of getting you to believe what I think already. And the same thing Mm. for you. And so it's in this argumentative context. They called it the argumentative theory of reasoning. It's when we're arguing that our logical abilities are at their best. So this leads to predictions, for example, that there are certain foibles in our ability to reason. One of them is what's called the confirmation bias. We tend to look for evidence in support of our theories as opposed to finding evidence against what we believe. Most people are not interested in a dispassionate search for truth. Most of us are human beings, normal dogmatic human beings, that believe what we believe and we're trying to persuade others. What science does is it says, okay, we'll exploit this feature of human nature. We'll put people in competition with each other. The rules of the game is you have to be absolutely precise about what you're saying, mathematically precise if you can be, and you have to tell us what experiment would prove you wrong. That's the rule Mm -hmm. of the game. But you can be as dogmatic as you want to, 
because there'll be other dogmatic scientists who are going to come at you with their logic and reasoning and try to prove you wrong. And that's how science works. That's the method of science. It takes this foible of human nature and uses it to allow us to advance by having arguments. So that's really, really powerful. That's the upside of science. It's figured out a way to harness the foible of human nature in a social institution, namely science, that allows dogmatic people to effectively, as a group, go past their dogmatism and actually make progress. It's very powerful. Mm. It's genius. Yeah. It's wonderful. The downside is that most scientists are still physicalists. That's the problem. And that's what I'm arguing against with my interface theory. And you know, many physicists are now realizing that there's a problem with physicalism. You know, local realism is false. Non-contextual realism is false. Space-time is doomed. The death knell of physicalism is all around us, but most physicists are still haven't you know, jumped off the physicalist bandwagon. Now, on the religion side, well, first, the upside of religion. Many religious traditions have already given up physicalism. Many Eastern religions, for example, think that the physical world is not the ultimate nature of reality and that it is something like an interface. I think that's an upside of many religious traditions. The downside and it's a very strong downside of religion, is dogmatism, hmm. claiming that certain scriptures are authoritative, that certain teachers or gurus or ministers or rabbis or priests are authorities. That is going to stop all inquiry. So the idea that there are any authorities, whether written authorities or human authorities, is going to stop the kind of inquiry we need to actually find out where we're wrong now and try to correct I'm happy to look at ancient scriptures and get inspiration. I'm happy to listen to ministers and gurus and, and so forth and get inspiration. But the moment you go from inspiration to saying that these are authorities, that's when you stop progress. What I want to see happening is this coming together of science and spirituality where the kinds of questions about humanity that, that religions raise meets the kind of rigor that the scientific method can bring to these questions. We have to get rid of the dogmatism on the side of religion, and we have to get rid of the physicalism on the side of science. It's going to be very difficult for both sides. It's not going to be easy, but I see the possibility for what you might call a scientific religion, in which, of course, you can still talk about what was written thousands of years ago as a source of inspiration, but wouldn't it be nice to actually be having it that the sermon, you find out there's something that contradicts the Bible or contradicts the Bhagavad Gita or whatever it is, and you bring that out and say, well, it was wrong right here. We've now learned that that was wrong. Okay, now we can move on and we can involve our, our religious conceptions and not have that negative thing there. I'm hoping mm -hmm. to get a mathematical theory of consciousness. But in fact, I have a mathematical theory. It may or may not be right, but I have a mathematical theory. One implication of this theory is quite interesting. I can take two conscious agents that are finite, and when they interact, it turns out the mathematics predicts that they form a new, more complex conscious agent. Now, more complex agents can interact, and they form even higher complex agents, and this can go on forever. In other words, I can start off with finite agents, trivial agents, even ones that I call one-bit agents that have only one bit of experience and one bit of action. They're very, very trivial agents. And I can go up to agents, conscious agents that are infinite. Now, as soon as I start talking about infinite consciousness, I'm treading on the turf of religion. I'm talking about what many religions would call some kind of notion of God. But the interesting mm -hmm. thing is, I can now do theorems and proofs about the nature of infinite conscious agents. I can turn theology into a mathematically precise theory. 
I can ask, how many infinite conscious agents are there? What are their natures? What can we prove about them? What is the relationship between infinite conscious agents and us finite agents that are part of them? I see a theology with theorems and proofs about God. And you know, I can't wait to see what those theorems and proofs are. And I would love to go to a, you know, a church service on Sunday where the sermon is about the latest theorems and proofs about the nature of God <laughs> and the practical implications for your life. I mean, that's yeah. the, now, now I'm on board. That's the go. kind of theology that I am eager to participate in. Of course, I'm also interested in the poetry and the yeah. music and the, the very personal sides of religion but not divorced from this other rigor that makes sure that we're not fooling ourselves. Yeah, that's interesting. That's really fascinating. Something that I've observed, and I would like to get your take on this, is that, you know, there are, I think, spiritual ideas or concepts that are very old, that are kind of now being corroborated in some sense by science. Like, for instance, take the idea that we're all one, right? It sounds very woo-woo and touchy-feely. Everything's interconnected. But if you look at it from Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of explains this, says that the atoms of our bodies are traceable to stars that manufactured them in their cores and exploded these ingredients across our galaxy billions of years ago. And so we're biologically connected to every other living thing in the world. Like we're chemically connected to all the molecules on Earth and atomically connected to all atoms in the universe. So this is kind of something that is a, a verifiable fact, but that was kind of, I guess, more intuited by spiritual traditions early on. And I think there are other examples like this. I'm just wondering what your take on that is. I agree that there's an important notion of unity that might have been lost before. And science is starting to give us some insight into that. So for example, there's a notion in physics of, of entanglement that, you know, say two electrons that, that first seem to us like two separate electrons can be entangled in such a way that there's this intimate connection between them that would hold even over billions of light years of distance apart. So there is this kind of unity beyond space and time of entanglement that physics has come up with. And I think that in the theory of conscious agents that I'm working with as well, I get this notion that agents can be viewed as separate, but their interactions create new agents. And there is a unity as well as diversity. It's really quite striking in the mathematics. You get a unity as well as a diversity of agents. You keep the agents, but they're also unified into other bigger wholes. So I am interested in that insight. Now, the relationship between science and religion here, again, we have to be careful in the following sense. So religions may say, yeah, we've, we've talked about the unity long before science ever did. And so this, you know, validates our religious views and so forth. And my, my attitude about it is the religious ideas have never been stated precisely, right? The, the thing about science, when it starts talking about some notion of unity, is this going to be a very precise claim about the kinds of unity, say, entanglement? or in my case of my theory of conscious agents, explicitly modeling how conscious agents, when they interact, mathematically form a new conscious agent. So this is a different kind of game. This is now a mathematically rigorous game where we're talking about unity, not in casual, informal terms. We're giving mathematically precise definitions of what we mean about it. And so this is a case where an idea that the folks in various religious circles might have had, and I think they did, gets cashed out into something that's far more rigorous and might take us in places that 
our intuitions would not have taken us otherwise. But there's there's one thing that I do want to point out about this. It's one thing I see sometimes in the relationship between science and religion is that some religious people that I've talked with just want to go to science to show that science confirms what they already believed. The inspired writings of someone from 3,000 years ago, we want to do is show that those inspired writings were right all along. Well, it's a bit of confirmation it's bias. Exactly kind of. right. And I think that that's the wrong attitude. The attitude should not be, I want to use science to show that what I've believed was true all along. That's not the right attitude. The right attitude is to say, these are interesting ideas from ancient writers. Some of them might be right. Some of them might be wrong. None of them are rigorous. None of them are precise in a mathematical sense. So can we get inspiration from these thousand-year-old documents? And can we find places where the ideas seem to be helpful? And also, can we find areas where our scriptures were wrong? When you have that, that attitude of where are we wrong, now you're playing science properly, right? It's not just trying to prove that I'm right, but where were we wrong and how can we fix that so that we can move on? So that's my concern. Well, okay, well, that's helpful. And that does clarify things a little bit for me. Donna, I want to be respectful of your time here, and I know we're coming to the end. Do you have time for one more sure. question? Sure. I wanted to ask you about meditation. I know you're a big meditator. Wondering how long you've been practicing that, why did you start, and why do you continue to do it? I'm really interested in what you have to say about how it relates to kind of loosening the hold of anxiety also. Yeah, I've been meditating for about 15 and a half years, and I do meditate every day for quite a bit of time. and for me, it's not a practice that's tied with any specific religion at all. It's simply a time to let go of all thoughts and relax. And so the way I, I view it is um, just a time of allowing my mind and my body to relax more and more deeply, to let go of stress and anxiety. The world is uh, you know, a complicated place, a lot of things going on, and it's good to let go of the stress and anxiety. I view it from a psychological point of view as it's sort of a counter-conditioning process. You know, all of us are born with various degrees of stress. Some of us are more stressed out than others. Stress physiologically is related, at least in part, to activity of the amygdala, part of the brain. And the amygdala doesn't really listen to talk therapy. <laughs> it can't be reasoned with. <laughs> it's the only language, so to speak, that you can use to talk to the amygdala is classical conditioning. I view meditation as, you know, especially in terms of dealing with stress and anxiety, as a way of classically conditioning the limbic system and slowly letting go of habits of anxiety and stress and replacing them with habits of, you know, relaxation. Some people are born with greater levels of stress. I mean, we know, for example, that it appears that if your mother was highly stressed when uh, she was pregnant with you, certain patterns of methylation happen in your DNA as a fetus, and you're born more inclined to be stressed as an infant. That's just the way you're wow. born. And some of us are born that way, and some of us are not. And so we're each given a different deck of cards to play. Some of us have a lot of stress in our deck, and some of us don't. And for those who have a lot of stress, and don't want to take drugs to deal with it, then I think there's no easy way out because the only way to deal with the limbic system really is classical conditioning. And so if you don't want to take drugs, then meditation is a good way to systematically and slowly transform patterns of stressful behavior in the limbic system to more relaxed patterns. But it's a slow process. I've been involved in meditation for 15 years, 
it has given me a deep respect for how deep the limbic programming can be. That's very helpful. I've heard you say that anxiety is a natural evolutionary program that has evolved to help keep us alive. Now in modern day society, we don't really need all that anxiety because we can go to Trader Joe's and get some produce as opposed to having to forage or hunt or kill unnecessarily. And so meditation you use as a way to reprogram your, you know, those ancient, you know, very, very old parts of your brain that are in survival mode to kind of loosen the grip there and make you less anxious. Is that is that right? That's a very good point. And that is anxiety and stress aren't wrong. They're not just flat out wrong. In fact, those of our ancestors who weren't anxious enough ended up being you know, the food for predators. You have to, you have to be watching around. And it turns out there's a correlation between where you are on the food chain. The higher up you are in the food chain, the less stressed out you need to be and the less stressed you are. Lions, most of the time, are quite relaxed. They sleep 16 hours or whatever it is. The only thing that might hurt them most of the time is another lion. If you're a rabbit, everything would like to eat you. And so, you know, if you look at rabbits, they take a little bite and then they have to look around, take another bite, look around. Little birds too, right? right. They'll, they'll, they'll take a little bite or, and then they have to look around. If you're not anxious enough, you will die. And so stress is very, very important to stay alive. But yeah, in modern society, it depends on where you live. If you're living in a war zone and people could be, you know, attacking you, then yeah, stress is very, very important even today. But if you're living in a quiet suburb and there's a good police force and they're not corrupt, and then stress isn't really needed. And stress does have its downsides. It takes a toll on your body physiologically. Production of cortisol really does wear and tear your body and, and shortens your life. So just as a matter of practice, you know, if you don't need the stress and you would like to be free of the stress and free of the damaging effects of cortisol, then you know you can try to take drugs, but you know they have the downsides. So meditation is a a way to slowly change from a stressful pattern to a relaxed pattern, but it doesn't happen overnight. At least that's not been my experience. It happens over years or decades. Well, Don, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me. This has been such an insightful and informative conversation. Really got a lot to chew on, but I'm grateful we got to talk. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ruben. Thanks for letting me on. Hey, thanks for listening to the Think Grow podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are two ways you can support it. The first is by subscribing to this podcast so you receive the newest episodes as soon as they're released. The second is by taking just a minute to leave a rating and review on iTunes. I would greatly appreciate this because it really helps me out. And finally, if you have any suggestions for future guests or topics you'd like to hear covered or anything like that, you can email us at podcast at thinkgrowprosper.org. Again, that's podcast at thinkgrowprosper.org. Thank you.